Take your Bible with me today, if you will, and find your place at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're just joining us, uh, you're online and you're just joining us. Uh, We're in a study of the book of 1 Corinthians that we've entitled Dear Paul. Paul had received a letter from the Corinthians uh, in the city of Corinth, and it included a number of questions that they wanted clarification about, they wanted instruction about. It was a Dear Paul letter. And as you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you find the Apostle Paul answering those questions. He's dealing with the issues that they brought up, as well as some issues that he had heard about uh, from others who had been in the city of Corinth. And so as we're going through this book, we're, we're looking at a letter, looking at a letter that was written back in response to a letter that Paul had received from them. And we've arrived in the third chapter. This is actually the second message from the first nine verses of the third chapter. We only got through a part of last week's message. So I'm going to go back there today and I want to read with you, if you'll follow along with me at verse one, and we'll read down through verse nine. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you were still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Let's pray together. Lord, as we continue today our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to learn these eternal truths. Sometimes we look at a church from the first century and we say, what could, ever, what could we ever learn from a church from the first century when we're living in the 21st century? And when we read our Bibles accurately, we learn that there's everything to be learned and applied from those early churches. Lord, I pray today that you'll help us to hear your Spirit speaking to us through your Word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You probably know as well as I do that people are very interested in their identities and in controlling their identities. I mean, some people want total autonomy in defining their identities, and they do so against all evidence of reality, and that borders on identity insanity, if you know what I'm talking about. They're hyper-interested on the issues of identity politics. And it's all around us. I want to be able to identify myself. I want to be able to tell you who I am. I want to give you the pronouns that I want you to use when you're addressing me. I want you to know what my identity is. Well, there's a lot of other ways in which people go through this kind of identifying of themselves. We identify by our political parties. We identify by our race. We identify by our denominational affiliations. We identify by our alma mater. We, do, we identify by our hometown community or our state, our home state. We, we identify by our sorority or our fraternity, or we identify by our economic status, and a list like that can go on. And a lot of times you bring these together and you develop your own identity, and then you want to make sure everybody knows what is your identity. What's interesting is when you turn to 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 2 and in here in the beginning of chapter 3 is that the Apostle Paul is going to give to us three identities that are true for everybody. Across the board, everybody fits into one of these three identities. And actually, we could say that there are just two identities and one of them has a subset identity. And Those identities that we want to look at for just a few moments, even if you say to yourself, you know, Pastor, I don't really identify myself at all. 
You know, sometimes we identify ourselves by the things that we don't say and the reactions that we have to things. Um, you may have heard the name R.G. Lee, Dr. R.G. Lee. Uh, he had a sermon, a famous sermon called Payday Someday. Uh, he preached it more than a thousand times. Mary and I were privileged to hear it in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in our home church. And uh, he came to our church and he delivered this message and we were able to hear it. Thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of, of reading that sermon. I'd encourage you to go look it up online and, and read it for yourself. But Dr. R.G. Lee was a well-known pastor of the last century. And Dr. Lee preached a very strong sermon one Sunday against sin. And there was a lady in that was in attendance and she didn't like the message at all, and so she made her way to the door to let him know that she wasn't happy about what she had heard. When she got there, she said, Dr. Lee, I want you to know I didn't appreciate that sermon one little bit. And Dr. Lee responded, ma'am, neither did the devil. Sometimes we identify ourselves by the way we react and the way we respond we want people to know who we are. We want people to know what we believe. We want to have an identity. But these three identities that are pointed out to us at the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 are the three spiritual identities that God gives to us. At the end of chapter 2, we learn that there is something called the natural man. We talked about this in detail in the last message, the natural man. The natural man is the one who is not a believer in Jesus. He is not a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a man that does not have dwelling in him the presence of the Spirit of God. He has little or no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. He can't understand the Bible when he opens it. It's a closed book to him. He doesn't pray unless he's in trouble, and then he doesn't know who he's praying to. He's just uttering words, hoping that somebody will hear his words, and somebody will help him. He's a natural man. He reasons according to the intellect of this world, according to the wisdom of this world. That's all he has. He has no other wisdom than the wisdom of this world. He has degrees hanging on his wall. He's super smart, intellectual. He understands a lot of things that maybe some of us don't fully understand, but he doesn't know Jesus. And the Bible refers to him as the natural man. He is not a spiritual man. He's a natural man. He was born a natural man. He's living as a natural man. He has no sense of the Spirit of God. He is dead in his trespasses and sins, as Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. And the only way for him to come out of that state is for him to be born again, to be born spiritually, to be made alive by the power of God, to be made a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he trusts in the Lord Jesus, at that instant, he moves out of being a natural man to being the second category. And that second category is the spiritual man. We read about him in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. Who is the spiritual man? The spiritual man is the one who has trusted in Jesus as Savior. He is the one who has the presence of the Spirit of God dwelling within him. He is the one who reads his Bible, and even if he doesn't understand everything there is to understand from it, he is seeking to know it better. He is the one who calls out to God and knows that there is a God who hears him and he loves to be able to talk to God. There's hope beyond this life. He, he wants to live his life today and he wants to do the best he can to succeed today, but he knows that this life is not all there is, that there is a life yet to come. It's a life either with God or separated from God. And he, wants, he is going to be with God because he's trusted in God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lives every day with the desire to follow God. It's not that he's perfect. It's not that he's faultless. It's not that he doesn't fail. It's not that he doesn't stumble along the way. But the spiritual man is the man who refuses to lay there and waller in his failures. But he gets up and he says, Father, forgive me. He is my father. He's promised to forgive me. Father, forgive me. And he gets back on that path and he gets moving again because there is that inner compulsion by the presence of the Spirit of God in his life that moves him toward doing those things which are spiritual. It's what moved you this morning to come to the service, many of you at least. 
You know where you should be. You know why you should be here. You know the benefit of being a part of a local assembly, a, a body of believers like this. You know the benefit of singing songs of praise to God. You know the blessings that come from being a friend and friends with a family like this. And you're motivated to, to be a part. You're, you're wanting to be a part. That's because you're a spiritual man. So there's the natural man and the spiritual man. We talked about both of those in some detail last week. But I want to talk a little bit more in detail today about what's called here the carnal man. At the end of verse 3, he uses the word carnal. He uses it again in verses 3 and 4. Three to, two times in verse 3 and a fourth time, a third time down in verse 4. To make four times, he uses the word carnal. What is a carnal man? We sometimes separate him out as a separate category, but as I was thinking about it this week, we probably should leave it as the natural man and the spiritual man, and under the spiritual man, there is a subcategory. He's not living to where God would have him to live. It's a subcategory, and that subcategory of a spiritual man is the carnal man. Now, if you uh, write, or one of those who's prone to writing in your Bible like I am, you can circle those three words in verses 3 and 4, carnal, carnal, and carnal. Do you see those? You can't see them up here. Can you see them in your Bible? You see those three words? You can circle them. When you go home, you can highlight each of those three words, and you can do what I've done. I've drawn a line from each of those circles, each of those boxes, down to that little phrase that says, behaving like mere men. What does it mean to be carnal? It means that you behave like mere men. What does it mean to be carnal? It means that though I am a spiritual person, I have Christ as my Savior. I have the presence of the Spirit of God in me. I have an inner compulsion to the things of God that would please God. Nevertheless, I'm not living in that fashion. I am living like mere men. I'm living like the natural man. My life looks like, it sounds like, it's characterized by more of the natural man than it is the spiritual man. And Paul comes and he writes to them and he says, that's not the way life is supposed to be lived. We're not supposed to be living where we look like and talk like and act like and think like and are like the natural man more than we are the spiritual man. You understand, you don't have to really work at being the natural man. It comes naturally. But when it comes to being a spiritual man, it means you've got to get up every day and you've got to yield yourself to the Lord. You're saved instantaneously, made a child of God once and for all and forever through faith in his son. But then you get up every day and you say, Lord, I yield myself to you today. I want everything about my life and every aspect of my life to be pleasing and honorable to you. And when you stop doing that, you stop living in that fashion, you begin living to a subset called the carnal man. You begin to slip back into a life that looks more like your old life than it does your new life. It looks more like the way you used to live than the way God wants you to live. And you become that carnal man. We're driven by our passions. We're driven by the, the thinking and the ideologies and the philosophies and the, and the ambitions of the world rather than by the wisdom of God and the, the, the theology of the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. And we're living that subset life rather than being the spiritual man that God desires us to be, not perfect, but desiring with all of our heart to follow him. Instead, we've slipped into a way of living that looks like the old way that we used to live. And Paul calls that the natural man. Excuse me, he calls that the carnal man. As a matter of fact, he likens the carnal man to something here. At the end of verse 1, he says, this carnal man, they're like babies in Christ. Now, now you expect a newborn baby to have to be cared for and diapered and given milk and provided for and to take care, be taken care of. You, you don't expect the newborn baby, right, to take care of himself or herself? Well, that's a little scary. You don't expect a newborn baby to take care of himself or herself, right? They have to be taken care of. They have to be watched over. I mean, that's normal. When you come to Christ and you're a new believer in Jesus, you need people watching over and helping and guiding and instructing and teaching and being your friend and being a shoulder to lean on. 
But there ought to come a place in your spiritual life when you can stand on your own two feet. You can begin to take care of some of the things of your spiritual life yourself, that you don't have to have somebody else who's spoon-feeding you or is feeding you through a, a baby bottle in order to give you the things of God. And here's what he says about the carnal man. He says, I came to you, and I, I see that you are not living as this spiritual man. You're living as this subset of a carnal man, and you're not even like, you're like babies in Christ. You're, you're like those that I've got to feed, not with the meat of God's word. You're like the ones that I've got to feed with the milk of his word. I mean, you're filled with your selfishness and your self-centeredness, your self-seeking attitude. You're thinking only of you. Don't babies do that? And, you know, babies aren't worried about what time it is in the middle of the night, whether you're sleeping or not, mom or dad, Right? That baby's going to cry and expecting you to come. And if you don't come, you're going to be miserable till you do go. And that's the carnal life. Instead of growing up and being mature and learning to walk with God and live for God, you're living more like the old life you used to have where you got to have somebody come and pamper you and take care of you and diaper you and feed you with milk. And you can't handle the deeper things of God. That's the carnal man. Now, there's a number of characteristics that he gives to us, the Scripture gives to us about the, the carnal man. For instance, a carnal Christian is somebody who's immature in spiritual matters. I was just talking about that. He, he's a babe in Christ. He's immature. He has to be treated and taught and, and, and dealt with as though he's a newborn uh, believer in Jesus. A second thing that's true about carnal Christians, it is that they're regularly involved in personal conflict. Uh, carnal Christians inevitably end up in debate and arguments. I'm not talking about over truth. I mean just over the petty things of life. In verse 4, he says, some of those in Corinth were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. We know that he, they also said, I'm of Cephas. In other words, they were dividing up and they were, they were, they were uh, seeking a party spirit of, you know, I follow this person and you follow that person and we can't get along with each other. And that carnality worked its way out uh, in their personal conflicts. We talked about that a little bit last week. But I want you to see thirdly that carnal Christians are incapable. They are incapable of making disciples. Turn with me for just a moment back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about these babies that need to grow up, they need to become the spiritual man that God intends them to be, to grow in their spiritual lives. I want you to listen to what he says about them. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And so we pick up the words that we were finding in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Those Corinthian believers who should have been living out their spiritual lives in a mature fashion, but instead had become carnal, looking more like their old lives, living like little babies who had just come to faith in Christ. And he says that, in Hebrews chapter 5, he says that when you ought to be teachers, you're needing someone else to teach you again. You see what he's saying? Carnal Christians are incapable of making disciples. Can I just tell you what God's purpose for your life is? I don't know every aspect of God's purpose for your life, but let me tell you a core aspect of God's purpose. It is that you make disciples of Jesus that you bring others to faith in Jesus and that you help them walk along and grow in their faith and become mature in their faith, that they would become the spiritual person that God wants them to be. But you know what? The carnal Christian can't do that. Because instead of teaching others, he has to be taught again. And why does he have to be taught again? Because he's unskilled in the Word. He doesn't know the Scripture. He doesn't understand the Bible Rather than having meat and potatoes as his diet, he's got to go back and have the strained beets and carrots of baby food. And can I just stop there for a moment? Have you ever tasted baby food? <laughs> have you ever tasted it? 
just put a spoon in it sometime and put it to your mouth and you'll see why your baby makes that face <laughs> when they put it when you put it in their mouths but do you get the idea of what he's saying to make disciples means to teach others you're beginning to lead others you're beginning to show others the way you're beginning to guide others along the past but you can't be teaching others when you still need to be taught and the reason you need to be taught is because you're unskilled in the world in the word you know in the spiritual world uh, in the physical world i should say reproduction is a evidence or a sign of maturity it's a sign of being a healthy individual when christians are healthy it's natural for them to reproduce spiritually to take interest in other people's lives and to begin to show others the way of Christ, to begin to show others and teach others the way of Christ, to show them by their example, to teach them by their, by their lips. You know, a carnal Christian, thinking about not incapable of making disciples, a carnal Christian is like a, is like a tire with a slow leak in it. Ever had one of those? And uh, you don't know where it is. You can't find the nail or a screw that's in the tire. It's just a little slow leak. And every so often you go out and the tire is deflated. Maybe it's not all the way deflated. What do you do? You have to go out and you have to pump it up. And you go out a few days later and it's deflated again. And you have to go pump it up. And you have to go deflate it again. You go pump it up again and deflate it again and go pump it up again. That's the carnal Christian. Rather than being filled with the Spirit of God, able to move forward and function in the things of God, they're constantly having to be pumped up, having to constantly be, be, be pumped up in life. I call these kind of Christians, or I call the mature Christians, uh, those that are low-maintenance church members. Do you know the difference? I've been pastoring almost 45 years. You realize the difference between a low-maintenance and a high-maintenance member? A low-maintenance member is the carnal Christian. The low, the, excuse me, the high-maintenance member is the carnal Christian. It's the one with the slow leak in his spiritual life, and you've got to constantly be pumping them up. You've got to constantly be coming and changing their diaper. You've got to constantly puree their food so that they can eat it. You've got to constantly be doing it. Uh, you know, they're a, they're a high maintenance member a low maintenance member is somebody who is spiritual somebody who understands the things of the spirit somebody who's growing in his or her spiritual life somebody that doesn't have to constantly be pumped up there isn't a slow leak in their spiritual lives and he says carnal christians are those that are incapable of making disciples i'm going to give you two others before we get to something really important that i want you to carry home with you carnal christians are unable to discern right from wrong you notice what he says in verse 14 of Hebrews 5? He says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Carnal Christians are unable to discern right from wrong. They're unable to look at something and say, that's good, and something else and say, that's bad. They lack that kind of discernment. They lack that kind of insight. They're unskillful in the word to begin with. They're not being yielded to the spirit every single day of their lives. They're not passionate about the things of God as they should be. And consequently, they look at the world around them and they have no ability to discern between what's right and what's wrong. Can I just tell you from a pastor's point of view that one of the most painful aspects of being a pastor is watching people make carnal decisions that you know are not going to turn out well you know it you can look at it and you can see what's coming you know if you make that choice and you move that path and you go that way you know that the end result isn't going to be good and it might not just be not good for you it might not be good for your children or not good for your grandchildren. As a pastor, you try to tell people, you try to guide people, you try to help people to see what you're seeing. But they go on and they make that decision anyway without any guidance from the Spirit of God or from the Word of God. And they head down a pathway that's a dead-end pathway. And of course, what you do then is when they find themselves broken, you reach out to them and you love them and you embrace them and you seek to restore them and bring them back to fellowship with God. 
But how much better would it have been had they been mature in their faith, had they been the spiritual man rather than the carnal man who was able to distinguish between right and wrong? And did you, know, did you notice he says that by reason of exercise, in other words, as you're growing spiritually, you begin to see, I make this decision, that's, that's not good. I make this decision, oh, that's good. And by reason of use, you're able to begin to see the difference between good decisions and bad decisions. You realize that your life is the product of the decisions that you make. If you make good decisions, you generally get good outcomes. If you make bad decisions, you generally get bad outcomes. And by the way, it only takes one good decision to get you back moving in a better direction. The carnal man can't determine what's right or wrong. He doesn't see what's good or bad. He doesn't see what's wise or what's foolish. But then a fifth characteristic of the carnal Christian is that they're manipulated. They're manipulated by false teachers in teaching. They're manipulated by false teachers in teaching. Turn back with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 for just a quick moment. Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bible for just a moment. And then I'm going to tell you how to become this spiritual man that we all desire to be. Ephesians chapter 4, listen to what he says, verse 11. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till, how long does this go on? Till... We all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, that's a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, our spiritual life begins to reflect the life of Jesus. And why would we want that? Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. In the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Carnal Christians are manipulated by false teachers and teaching. By the way, do you see what he says? To be a spiritual man, you need. You need a pastor teacher. You need people who are equipping you for the, for the life that God wants you to live and for the ministry that God wants you to do. And as you're being equipped and you're beginning to grow in your spiritual life and you're maturing in your spiritual man, the result is that you're able to discern right from wrong. You become skillful in the word of God. You begin to make good decisions, more good decisions than bad decisions. You begin to see the blessing of God in your life in ways that you didn't see it before. You realize that getting into that argument is really a waste of time. Why would we want to engage in an argument like that. That's useless. That's worthless time spent. Why would we want to argue about that? And you begin to mature rather than acting like babies, rather than acting like the carnal man. And when you hear something that you know something doesn't sound right about it, your antennas go up. And you say, hmm, I don't think that's right. I'll give you an example. I was sitting in a funeral service uh, several years ago, many years ago, actually. And the pastor was preaching about, uh, it was a young child that had died, and the pastor was preaching about uh, there are all of these spirit babies in heaven, and they're all waiting for bodies in this life. And, uh, you know, he kept talking about it over and over, and my, my antenna went up, and I thought, that, that, that's Mormon doctrine. That's not Christian doctrine. That's not biblical doctrine. And if you're not careful, have you noticed that there's plenty of radio preachers and plenty of television preachers, including this one? Plenty of television preachers. You have to have your senses exercised, your ability to discern exercised so that you're not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Our, our pastor used to say it this way. Every time Dr. Bottlestopper blows through, a bunch of you are gone to go hear him. Now, that doesn't make sense to you. That's a southern, southern way of saying it. But every time some speaker that everybody loves comes through, everybody's gone to go hear the speaker. It abandons the church in the process. They're blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so those are the characteristics of somebody who's carnal, somebody who's living this subset life. 
Somebody who's not living out what God would have them to live out to be the spiritual man that God wants them to be and that he's made them to be. That they've decided to live more like this old life. And it makes them like babies constantly having to be taken care of and pampered and watched after and diapered and spoon-fed. God wants us to grow up. Do you get the point? Do you get the point? God wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature in the faith. If you're a new believer in Jesus, we don't expect for you to be a giant of the faith overnight. But if you've known the Lord for several years or many years, you ought to be able to give evidence of the fact that you're growing in the Lord. There's maturity to your faith. That you can make good decisions. You can handle the scriptures. You do hear things that are wrong and you're automatically identify them because you have enough knowledge of God's word that you recognize what is right and what's wrong. You don't get involved in these petty arguments with one another and all these other things that are a part of the carnal Christian. Can you imagine going to church at Corinth and you got one group that sits over here and says, I hope Paul's preaching today. And you got another group that's sitting over here and they say, you know, I hope Apollos is preaching. Paul's too heavy on doctrine. Paul preaches doctrine all the time, but Apollos, now I'm going to tell you, Apollos, he's that silver-tongued orator. You could sit on the end of your pew, and you would be held in in raptured attention, and you would never get tired of hearing him. Or or Peter, you know, got a group over here that's for Peter. I hope Peter's preaching today because Peter just goes after sin. Peter just preaches hard against sin, and they're divided. Paul looks at the Corinthian church and he looks at the American church and he says, are you not carnal? Aren't you acting more like babies than you are the mature saints that you ought to be, that I've made you to be? Haven't you stopped pursuing the Lord and allowed yourself to drift into becoming like your old self rather than the new self that God has made you to be? So those are characteristics But the real question is, how do you become that spiritual person? You've trusted in the Lord as your Savior. You know that you have the gift of eternal life. You know that if your heart stops beating this moment, that you'll awaken on the other side in the presence of Jesus Christ. You have that confidence and that assurance that's based on the authority of this book. How do I become that spiritual man? Well, first of all, we must be absorbed with the sacrificial price. We must be absorbed with a sacrificial price. What do you mean, Pastor, the sacrificial price? We have to go back again and again to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for our sins and never let ourselves get very far from what Jesus did for us. We have this funny thinking in our churches today that somehow we are special people that that God looked at us and said, you know what, I can't do without them. So I'm going to go send my son so that they'll have salvation because I need them on my team. I need them with me. And we think somehow we're, we're, we're blessing God by coming to God. Can I tell you, that's the exact opposite picture that the New Testament gives. The opposite picture is that we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, who shake our fist in the face of God. We are the enemy of God. There is nothing about us that would would cause God to, to send his son except that God is love. And God, out of his great love, sent his son for us who didn't deserve that sacrifice of his son on the cross of Calvary. And consequently, we never get very far from the reality of that sacrifice. The church has an ordinance called communion. Do you know why we have communion? Do you know why we have the Lord's Supper, as some call it? Do you know why? The answer is because we're to go back to the cross over and over and over and over again. And we're never to get far from the cross. We're to stay close to the cross. And we're to be absorbed with the sacrificial price. Do you realize what it is that Jesus paid for your eternal soul? He gave his life for your eternal soul. Go with me for a moment into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has finished the Last Supper. 
He's eaten with his disciples in that upper room, and now he's headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He leads some of the disciples just at the entrance to the garden. He takes Peter, John, Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden with him, and he leaves them there, and Jesus goes deeper into that garden, that garden of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. He goes deeper into that garden. The Bible says that he begins to pray by himself, begins to pray. The pressure of what's facing him, the weight of what is ahead of him is so great that the capillaries beneath the skin of his face begin to burst under the pressure that he's under, and he begins to sweat drops of blood. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, he prays. When he finishes, he goes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. They couldn't even stay awake with him for one hour. He goes back again and he begins praying that same prayer a second time. The pressure is so great, the enormity of it is so great that his face is sweating the drops of blood. He goes back and they're still not able to stay awake. He goes a third time and he prays in that same fashion his face is bleeding where the vessels beneath the skin have broken from the, the stress and the pressure he's under. He's looked into the cup. And he knows that in that cup isn't just the physical suffering. What's in that cup is the separation he's going to have to endure on our behalf. Separation from God the Father on our behalf. Amen. He finishes praying the third time and he comes out and as they're Beginning to leave the garden, here comes a crowd of people. They're all coming to take him under arrest. He could have easily, he could have easily escaped. He could have called the angels of heaven as the army to defeat those who had come against him, but that's not what he did. He willingly went to, to, with them and for six unjust trials, unjust trials, Jesus endured their judgment. Can you imagine what it would be like to have your back laid bare with a cat of nine tails where your skin and your muscle are torn almost beyond the ability to stand up straight? Can you imagine what it's like to have a crown of thorns put together and placed on your head and pushed down? Now you've got only the face that's bleeding from the capillaries that are beneath the skin. You have the blood that's coming from the crown of thorns on your head. Can you imagine what it's like to be taken into the praetorium and the guards blindfold you and they slap you and they say, okay, prophesy, who was that? And they slap him again. Okay, tell us who that was, Jesus. They spat upon him. You realize that they took his beard with their hands and they pulled it from his face. The Bible says that his visage was so marred that you almost couldn't recognize him as being human. And after all of the things that he went through, all of that unjust treatment that he, does, that he received, he's condemned. Pilate can't find any reason to condemn him, but he condemns him anyway. And they take him out with a crossbeam over his shoulders. Ultimately, somebody else carries the crossbeam but they make it their way outside the city of Jerusalem to a hillside called Golgotha, and they place his hands on either side of that crossbeam, and they take these huge spikes at the base of the hand, not up here, in the base of the hand. They know how to do it. They've crucified thousands. The Roman soldiers have crucified thousands. They know how to accentuate the pain to make it as, as, as painful as possible without causing death too quickly. And they drive the spikes through his, through his hands. They begin lifting him and they drive his, a spike through his feet. People are mocking him. They're laughing at him. You saved others, save yourself. Hanging there, suspended between heaven and earth. And you think that's the worst part? In the middle of those hours, the sky goes completely dark as if it's nighttime in the middle of the day. God shudders the sun. And in those moments, he takes the penalty for our sins and his righteous justice, and he executes it on his son, Jesus, the only sinless one 
the only one who had a right to say, I've never committed a sin at all. He takes our penalty and our sin, and Jesus becomes sin for us, and God executes his wrath and his justice against sin on his own son. And Jesus, in the middle of it, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little later, he says, To Telestai, it is finished. That's a, an accounting term. When something is paid in full, you stamped it with that word, to telestai, paid in full. He gives up his spirit. Joseph and Nicodemus take his body and they bury it in a garden tomb, a borrowed garden tomb. They seal it. They do the best they can to prepare as much as they can before, before six that evening. They roll a stone in front of it. The Roman soldiers put guards out in front of it to make sure nobody steals the body and say he rose from the dead. But you know what? On that Easter Sunday morning, they couldn't keep him in the grave. There was no soldier that could keep him in the grave. And Jesus rose victorious over sin, over death, and over hell he ascends back to the Father 40 days later, and he comes to any one of us, and he says, look, this is how much I love. This is how much I love. It's not that you're so special. We are the created in the image of God. I understand that. But our sin has made us the enemy of God. It is that God is so great, and God's love is so great. And he says, I come to you to redeem you. If you'll just come to me and trust in me, I'll make you my child. I'll forgive your sins. I'll take away your sins once and for all and forever. I'll give you the presence of my spirit to live within you. That'll be the down payment that assures you of an eternity with me forever. I'll give you my word to guide you and direct you. I'll give you a family, a church family that you can walk along this life with and they can help you and you can help each other along the way. You understand, we have to be absorbed with the sacrificial price. I'm sort of concerned that a lot of us have lost the impact of what the crucifixion is really all about. After all, we saw the passion of the Christ. We've seen it. The passion of the Christ doesn't even scratch the surface of the brutality of what Jesus endured or the separation that he had from his father while he hung on the cross. It doesn't even scratch the surface. And then we come and say, well, I'm going to live more like my old person, the old person I was than the new person. I'm going to live in a subcategory of spirituality where my life looks more like the world around me than it looks like the God above me. How can you love God and say, Lord, thank you for what you did for me and not want to give him the best that you have to offer? You remember the woman that came to Jesus? Simon, the Pharisee, had invited Jesus to his house for a meal. He didn't, he didn't give him a kiss. You know how they do on either side of the cheek. He didn't offer to wash his feet. He didn't give him any oil to put on his, on his face when he came in. But there was a woman. says she was a sinful woman. A lot of guesses as to what all was involved in her sin. We'll not get into that today. A sinful woman makes her way into that room. Jesus, they didn't sit like you're sitting. Jesus is stretched out. He's probably on one elbow. He, the table's right here in front of him. His feet are stretched out behind him. And the woman comes in. And she begins to weep. She lets her hair down. She, no, no woman would do that. Once uh, a woman put her hair up, she always kept her head covered. She would never let her hair down except for her husband. She lets her hair down, and she begins to take this alabaster box of, of ointment, pours it on his feet. His, her tears are beginning to water his feet, and she begins to wipe his feet. She begins to kiss his feet again and again and again and again. And the Pharisee says, Jesus, if you were a prophet, you'd see who this woman was. You'd see the kind of woman this was. You'd never let this woman touch you if you knew what kind of woman she was. But you must not be a prophet. But then Jesus shows them that he's a prophet, that he knows, because Jesus tells him what he's thinking. And he gives him a parable. 
He said, if there were two men, one of them owned five, owed five denarii and another owed 50 denarii. A denarius is about a day's wage for a common laborer. So one owes almost uh, two years of, of, uh, of money. The other owes about two months of money. If both of those men owed money and they were required to pay it, but the owner decided to forgive them their debt, who do you think would be the most grateful? And the Pharisee Simon said, well, it would be the man with the 500 who owed the, five, who owed the 500 denarii. That would be the one that would be the most grateful. And Jesus said, you've, you've rightly said. And then he says, this woman, since I walked in this room, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. She hasn't stopped crying and anointing my feet. She hasn't stopped since she came in this room. But Simon, you didn't bring me a basin of water. Simon, you didn't kiss my, you didn't kiss my face when I walked in. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't do any of those things. Do you know what he was saying? Do you, you understand what he's saying? He's saying, do you see this woman, Simon? She has been forgiven much, and now she gives to God much in return. Simon, your problem is you don't really see yourself for who you are. Simon, you don't really see your sinfulness. You think you're righteous. You're a Pharisee. You're self-righteous. You think you're somebody, that, that you're above everybody else. Consequently, you don't think you even need forgiveness. Do you understand what he's saying? When we become absorbed with the sacrificial price that Jesus paid, we begin to see who we really are and who he really is. And we become consumed with the reality of the God of heaven who would love us in the way he loves us so that we cannot live in a subcategory that we can only offer to God our best. Does it come short? Yes. Do we falter along the way? Yes. Do we fail along the way? Yes. But we don't lay there and waller in it. We get up and we say, oh, God, forgive us. And we move back on the path and we get going down the path again because we want to please the one who's made us his child and forgiven us so much. Do you get it? Amen. The old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I want you to know something. You're looking at a man who was the wicked, evil, ungodly sinner who deserved to go to a Christless hell except that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me and came to me when I wasn't coming to him and he saved me from my sin. How can I give anything less than my best to the one who has done that for me? We have to become consumed and absorbed with the sacrificial price. Secondly, we have to, or we must be attentive to the Spirit's presence. I'm going to quickly talk about this. We must be attentive to the Spirit's presence. We've got to realize that dwelling within us is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You say, how can I live the spiritual life? You'll never do it on your own. This isn't a matter of you, you know, pulling your spiritual life up by your bootstraps. I'm going to do this by myself. You'll fail every single time. You know what it is? It's a matter of saying, oh God, I can only live this life if your spirit lives the life through me. And I yield myself to you and I ask you to work in me and through me and where there are things that need to be changed, change me. And Lord, where I'm on the right path, confirm to me I'm on that path. But oh God, I need you to live your life through me. Stuart Briscoe says that there's four stages to the Christian life. He says the first stage comes right after being saved. And it goes like this. Man, this is, this is easy. But then after a while, he starts considering the demands of discipleship. And he feels the onslaughts of the, of the, of the devil's temptation. And he says, this is hard. Then he goes a little further and he comes to the third degree where he says, this is impossible. Nobody can do this. And then he discovers the power that God has in him through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is glorious. This is glorious. Because he learns that God wants to live this life in him and God wants to, learn this, wants to live this life through him. 
if he'll only yield himself. To be the spiritual man, you know what you have to do? You've got to get up every day. You've got to say, God, I'm yours. What I think today, where I go today, how I talk today, who I'm with today, what I handle with my hands today, where my feet carry me today, Lord, this is not about me. This is about you. I've got a job to do, but Lord, everywhere I go, you're going to be, you're going to be in me. You're going to be working in me and through me. And God, I want to be your vessel through which you can work today. Lord, help me to think the right things, to do the right things, to be with the right people, that my hands will hold the right things. God, I need your help every single day. Do you do that? We should be doing that. Because to be the spiritual man, not only do we have to be absorbed with that sacrificial price that Jesus paid for us, we have to be attentive to the Spirit's presence that is in us. God, I can't live this life apart from you. You have to empower me and you have to enable me. And finally, we have to be available for the Savior's purpose. And what is the Savior's purpose? Go back to 1 Corinthians real quickly. Chapter 6, and I'll be through. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Skip ahead with me for a couple of chapters and listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. What's God's purpose for you? It is that you would glorify God in your life. 